1: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. Recently, I've been lucky enough to talk to a wonderful Pearl Harbor veteran. I've talked to one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, one of the African-American airmen who fought with such skill and tenacity in the skies above Europe in the Second World War. And today I've got another wonderful veteran to talk to. This time I'm talking to Grace Taylor. She's 97 years old. She's a former gunner girl in the Auxiliary Territorial Service. It was a service founded in 1938 and women entered it and performed a range of essential wartime activities. I'm also going to be talking to Tessa Dunlop. She's a well-known historian. She's broadcaster and writer. She's author of the fantastic book, Army Girls. And we're going to talk about the women who fought, the women who served, and the women who also often get overlooked in the story of the Second World War. It is a very, very great pleasure to have these two wonderful women on the podcast. And I've got to say, Grace, age 97, she can use the Zoom better than many people half her age. Fact, fact. If you want to listen to other podcasts about World War II or watch TV shows about the Second World War, by any chance, we've got our own history channel. It's kind of cool. It's the world's best digital history channel. It's probably the world's best history channel, actually. I can say that as a fact. There's no aliens on there. There's no conspiracy theories about Hitler wandering around Argentina. There's just great history with really good historians. Our Pearl Harbor documentary with Don Wildman, in which he discusses the turmoil that followed Pearl Harbor and his family, in his city, in his state, in his country, is going great guns. So many people watching that. So great to have a US team working on Team History Hit for the first time. It's a huge honor, and it's very, very exciting. We're going to be expanding, doing more US stuff over the next year. So please go and subscribe. Historyhit.tv is the website. You can sign up, and you get, for less than the cost of a pint of beer every month, you get access to the World's Best History Channel and you get to join the coolest team on earth. Do it. In the meantime, though, here is the very brilliant Tessa Dunlop and the gunner girl, Grace Taylor. Hello. Welcome on the podcast. Good to have you, Grace Tessa. Hello. Hello, Tessa. Grace, did you want to help out when war broke out
0: in 1939? What was going through your head? In 1939, I didn't think about going into the army, no. I wasn't old enough anyway, but I decided to go in, and I went in in 1941. To cut a long story short, I had my very first boyfriend was in the Army, and we used to meet to go to dances. I always did a lot of dancing. And a few months after we'd been meeting, he told me he had been transferred. He was sent out to Port Said. I got the feeling that if I was to join up, I might meet him again. He was my first boyfriend, and, and uh, I didn't want to lose him. So that was when I decided I would join up, when they posted him away, you see.
2: So there's me, Grace, thinking it was all about patriotism and Winston Churchill speeches, and you were just uh, didn't want to let the boys slip through your fingers. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, I was only 16 anyway, you see, so I had to go to Southend to join up. And I was living in Brentwood at the time, so I had to wait till I had a half a day off. Um, and I, I caught the bus and went into, uh, went into Southend and I signed on. Well, of course, I didn't tell anyone what I was doing because I was having to live in with my job. And I knew that it wouldn't be nice to still carry on working when I was waiting for them to send for me, you see. But it was only a couple of weeks when they did send for me.
2: How common was that experience, Tessa? What were the reasons that the people that you've interviewed tended to join up?
1: There was a combination of reasons. I found Grace's story particularly moving. You lost your mum very young, didn't you, Grace? Aged 11. Yeah. And you were in domestic service, against your will, really, from the age of 14. So effectively, Grace didn't really have a home. One in four girls were in domestic service. It was the job that no one wanted between the wars. And it was very lonely. You were quite lonely, weren't you? Yes, I was.
0: Yes. Yeah. I I needed company, you see. When you are In domestic service like that, you're the only one. There's no one else your young age. And I was doing something that I know if my mum had been alive, I would never have been sent into service, but it was my stepmother that sent me into service, the same as she sent my older sister. I had a sister who was two and a half years older than me, and she sent her into service as well. This person that my father married after my mum died, she wanted him, but she didn't want his children. So that so, was how I came to be in the service. I'd never done housework before, but it mostly common sense, I suppose, really. And um, I was glad to get out of it. And the thought of joining the army, well, I knew I was going to have company and, and I'd have somewhere to sleep because, you see,
1: I couldn't go back home. They didn't want me home anymore. So, And also, the other thing that's quite important is until conscription, which was 80 years ago in December this year, Girls, you had to volunteer. And a lot of the time, their parents didn't want them wearing a uniform and leaving home. But Grace didn't have that barrier. So she didn't have the parental barrier saying you can't do this, especially not at 16, because Grace added on her age. And the other thing is for Grace, it was a step up. A lot of girls didn't want to join the army, though they had high flown ideas about the Wrens, darling, or indeed had their own jobs or their own lives. And actually, it was anathema at the beginning of the war, the idea of putting women in uniform. That changed very quickly. So Grace, in many ways, was a gift to this service, the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, that was needing to grow and fast. And they didn't just want any old girl. They wanted bright girls and they had to shed the class cloak. They realised by 1941 they needed to replace the men on the gun sites. This was revolutionary, but they needed to find women who could operate high-tech equipment. So it didn't matter where you came from in society, what mattered was your ability. And you were tested quite early on, weren't you, Grace?
0: Yes, I was, yes. When they did send for me, I was told to report to Leicester. Glimp Parver was the barracks. Um, and on that day, there there were about 20 girls arrived at the same time from all over the country. And we all arrived more or less at the same time. I'd never been in a barracks before, and and you're taught so much then. You're you're issued with your uniform and your steel helmets and your gas masks and (laughs) boots and gaiters and the usual uniforms, you know, and and your dress uniform, of course. But then you're also taught how to march, and we did a lot of what they called square bashing, (laughs) And um, we did a lot of marching to bands, which, of course, I love because I, I just love music. I'm getting a bit full now because I'm,
1: I'm going, I'm living it again. Quite emotional, isn't it? The other thing is that I'm going to quickly step in here so you can blow your nose, Grace. But that boyfriend was very significant. It was the first time she'd been hugged since her mama died, really. It was the first time she'd had close contact and affection. And suddenly for him to be ripped away, I think that's when, Grace, you thought, what is this war? You know, why can't I be part of it? And I was very struck actually talking to these women just how deep the gender divisions were. Men in those early years were fighting a war to protect women. And once you start including women in the war, well, that sent men in the war off steam was coming off their bald heads. You know, oh my goodness, you know, how do we frame this war? If we need to put women in uniforms, how do we frame it? How do we make this work for the general public, for the Times-reading establishment? You know, and actually that was where their concern lay. And they didn't pick up on the fact that girls like Grace were there raring to go, a lot of them, not all of them. They had to conscript and draft girls in. But there were also girls like Grace who actually given half the chance. You wanted to belong, didn't you, Grace?
0: Yes, that's true. I needed the company. I needed companionship and course, I made friends very easy. We were all friends, to be quite honest. I just had three special ones, but that was after we were sent to Arborfield for training, and that was where they decided what you would be best doing. And it was then that I was told I was going to the Royal Artillery. And um, then you start getting close friends that are going to be in your battery, you see. I had three special friends. One was Cathy Bott, one was Lil Crow, and myself. And We were the three stooges that were always together. And we even worked together on the Height Finders and the plotting.
2: And, Grace, you're getting a little emotional there when you're talking about this. Is that because of – are there painful, traumatic memories or are these happy memories?
0: They're happy memories. They're happy memories. They're things that um, I'm back living it again, you see, and I did enjoy myself in the Army, I must admit that. It was a dreadful war and we had some awful times, but I was also happy because I had got friends. And I hadn't had close friends before, you see.
2: And how were you treated by the men you're working alongside? What did they make of all of you guys in uniform?
0: I was in what they called heavy, akak, mixed battery. So there was 50-50, really, half men and half girls. When we first formed, they were, well, we said older men. They were sort of 30 above, you know. but Ancient. Oh, yes.
2: Grandpas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Almost as old as you, Dan.
2: No, I mean, they are 15 <laughs> years younger than me. <laughs>
1: Oh, I
0: see them in a different light now. (laughs) But um, (laughs) after the battery was formed, we were trained on the guns, of course, and um, the young men that were in the battery were shipped out and they were replaced with these older men. Well, they treated us like their daughters, so it was fine. But we were sorry to lose the young lads that were trained with us, you see, but they needed to send them abroad. So we had the older men, but I mean, they were very fit. I mean, we thought they were old, but I mean, when they're in their 30s, they're still pretty fit, aren't they?
2: We're all right. Yeah, you know, we cling on to a bit of the old youth.
1: (laughs) Grace is interesting because Grace had no problems on her gun sight, but quite a few of the other women I've worked with, and I've seen their letters home, complain about, quote-unquote, and this is Lady Martha Bruce, who later became a lieutenant colonel. She was a radar operator. She writes home to her mother, Kitty Countess of Elgin, it would be all right if it wasn't for the dirty old men. There was quite a few issues, and quite a lot of those older men find the younger girls tiresome. Now, Grace didn't find any of this, and she found all the men respectful. So I have to say, Grace was an exception. But there were some issues, and actually the head of AA command, General Sir Frederick Pyle, changed that ruling about older men. And by the end of the war, he was bringing in younger recruits again who didn't find, quote-unquote, it's so hysterically unorthodox working with women. But you didn't find that, did you, Grace? No, because once our
0: battery was formed and we had got the, as I say, the older men, we all stayed as a battery. It wasn't changed again, and we were with them right through until the battery was disbanded. We all got on well together. There was no hanky-panky going on. Unfortunately, I did lose one of our, you know, I told you I had three, two other friends. There were three of us. But Cathy, I don't know how or who it was with, but she managed to get pregnant. But it wasn't with anyone on the gun site. It
1: was someone she'd met outside. And that was immediate dismissal. Paragraph 11. I know it seems like we're going off the subject, but actually Parliament, all their concern wasn't about girls being hit by enemy raiders. It was about where the girls became promiscuous. And there was a big parliamentary committee, the Markham Committee, sent to investigate derogatory rumours in the service in 1942. What's interesting, Dan, is, of course, in this current climate, there was no equivalent investigation into the male army, just, you know, the female <laughs> services. And you found that very unfair, didn't you? are quite angry about that today, Grace, aren't you?
0: Yes. It was a shame, really, because we got on so well. But uh, then, of course, it meant that there was just um, Lil and I, you see. But um... We got over it, but I mean, Lil was disappointed, the same as I was, that she'd done this, you know, because we didn't even know that she was going out to meet anybody. <sighs> I, I had, my spare time was just spent in the naffy.
2: Grace, people think about women serving in the war away from the front line. You were in an anti-aircraft battery. You were firing explosives at German raiders, bombers. You you were on the front line.
0: Well, yes, I suppose so, really. But we did as we were told, you see, we were trained to use these instruments and... I enjoyed it because I knew I was good at it and I had very good eyesight in those days and hearing, of course. And you had to spend hours and hours learning about anti aircraft recognition, you see, because you needed to know whether it was your own or your enemy that you were tracing. And once you picked it up in the sky, of course, then you put your instrument on it and it was the girls that had to find out or work out where the plane was. So you needed the bearing and the angle and the height, for their information to be passed over to the guns. There were four 3.7 guns on each gun site, and then the command post is actually in the centre of them. So your information is being transferred to these big guns for the men to fire. The girls would never fire the guns. Well, they couldn't lift the ammunition anyway. They were very big shells. So there were men that were on the guns, of course. They were doing their bearing and angle and height from the
1: information we'd given them. It's an interesting point here, Dan, which you probably know, actually. But until April 1941, girls couldn't be on operational sites. That changes in April 1941. This very far-seeing pile, the head of AA command, does pre-war research because he sees this is going to happen. He sees he's going to get the male duds, dimwits, as he refers to them. One has latter stages of venereal disease, one a glass eye, one can't fire a gun. So he knows he needs girls. So he gets a female electrical engineer, Caroline Haslett, before the war to prove girls can do this. He knows the big stumbling block will be women being permitted to relinquish that non-combat status. And so Carolyn Haslett concludes in her research, girls could do everything except the heavy work involved in loading, manoeuvring and firing guns. So that hopped over the gender issue so that Churchill could present this to Parliament. Yeah, we're going to conscript girls. They will be working on gun sites, but they won't be firing the guns. So they won't be combatants. Now, of course, you're just as likely to die. And one of the women I work with, her best friend died on a gun aged 18 because the shrapnel that's falling doesn't discriminate. Were you ever afraid, Grace, when you were out there? No,
0: never entered my
1: mind. It never entered
0: any of our minds. No, you were told to do the job and you did it. how You knew how to do it and you were doing it well. You never had time to think about yourself.
1: (laughs) Tell Dan about that night in Plymouth, that terrible night in Plymouth. Well, they put us on
0: a gun site that was on Crown Hill, just outside Plymouth. We were overlooking Plymouth, actually, and we were called out on the raid because Plymouth was being bombed. And we were out firing all night, and they were dropping their bombs, and they flattened Plymouth. We were out all night, and in the morning, when we were told to stand down, before we went back to our barrack room, we were told that the girls that had been on duty all night could have the morning off. And as a special thank you, they allowed us to go down into town. Demeth was flattened when we went down into town. And I can remember where the rank of shops had been blown up. The owners of the shops were trying to collect what they could of their stock. And there was a, like a paste table was put up with all these bits and pieces of makeup on. And uh, we went and had a look. And my favourite was Californian poppy perfume. And they had some on there they were selling for sixpence a bottle. So, I bought this perfume. I was so pleased to be able to buy perfume again, you know. But of course, found out after that the Americans had just arrived by boat into Plymouth, and I think it was the Americans that really attracted the Germans to come and bomb, because they wanted to knock the Americans out as well, because they were helping us, weren't they?
2: listen to Dan Snow's history we're hearing from Tessa Dunlop and Grace Taylor about the women of World War II. More coming up.
1: Hi I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb and in my podcast Not Just the Tudors we talk about everything from sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not in other words just the Tudors but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions like Who built Stonehenge? and Why? What are the Dead Sea Scrubs and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Tessa, what other jobs? We've got the anti-aircraft batteries. Give me a sense of the galaxy of jobs that these women were doing.
1: There was a galaxy, so I want to say what fascinated me about this, the anti-aircraft sites particularly, you know, Grace is the original drone girl. These were predictors, height finders, radar, all the new tech, and it was girls in charge. And interestingly, in America, still that part of the army recruits more girls than men, the Queen Drones, apparently they're referred to. And Eisenhower was so impressed with our mixed batteries and how well they worked that they replicated them, the Americans. It was a massive success story. And, of course, managed to fit into those gender specific roles. All the trades broadened out. So initially it's just five jobs, which is why the ATS was unpopular. Nobody wanted to be just a dog's body to the army. There was you could be an orderly or a cook. They never had enough cooks. Because, of course, if you think you've got one and a half million Allied soldiers coming into Britain, you need to cook for them. Well, by now, the ATS has rebranded, you know, it's action through adventure, et cetera, and girls are dreaming of a great big gunny-wanny. They don't want to cook. So that's one of the crises that actually, ironically, that the ATS has to deal with, that they've rebranded themselves and you can go into signals. There was a lot of wireless interceptor girls, one of my favorites, Nanza. You're not allowed to have favorites, but you know what I mean. Sometimes they're touchy graces. So Nanza was taught Morse, and then she goes up to Harrogate and is on the moors intercepting German Enigma encrypted communications. Betty, because she spoke German, was seconded to Bletchley Park. Then also you have lots of clerks. Clerks are massively in demand once we start sending girls over into Europe to back up our Allied push post D-Day. That was another nightmare for government. Parents think this is the end of the war. What do you mean you want to send away our little flower into all those men? This was the big concern. The big concern was not Jerry Bomber's. It was parents worried about allied men and their behaviour. They couldn't get enough female volunteers because if a girl wanted to volunteer, they had to have parental permission or their husband's permission. And so that was got rid of, and they were directed overseas by February 1945 to back up the British Army of Liberation. And lots of women, thousands of ATS girls were in liberated Belgium. They are operating the gun sites from Belgium. They then move into occupied Germany and they're a big part of our backup army doing all the clerical work. Joan sent 180 letters home from occupied Germany um, working in the legal department. And it was fascinating. And also, of course, into Italy. Then there was the elite corps, the Fanny, who came into this ATS umbrella. But I think for me, one of the reasons I was so struck by Grace's story is that, in many ways, you were the epitome of what the people's Army, this new brand army wanted. You were talented, grace. you wouldn't have been spotted had it not been for the war. That little story about the perfume, she was military, but she was also feminine, she retained her femininity. that was really important. They didn't want to defeminize you know our future mothers. The language, Dan it's just extraordinary how eighty years ago I mean Grace, you'll tell us this it was a totally different world, wasn't it? yes. The more I think about it, you know, I think, did I really go through all that, you know?
2: (laughs) Grace, what's it like for you now seeing women commanding naval ships, piloting fighter aircraft, serving on the front line as engineers and other combat roles? What's that like for you now thinking about that?
0: I envy them. Yes, I do. I envy them because it would have been nice if I could have stayed in really. But um, as Tessa knows, I married while I was in the army.
1: Oh, go on, tell Dan about your love story. It's too good. Tell him about meeting Bob on the gun site. <laughs> we were stationed actually on a gun site between
0: Cheltenham and Gloucester and this chap used to drive. We had uh, 1,500 weights and three tunners that stayed with us all the time, of course. But, I mean, we had lots of other um, girls that weren't working on the gun site that were doing office work. We always had men. It was the soldiers, the men that were doing the cooking. But we did have girls working in the office and they used to do the wages and things like that. But um, I don't know how we got together. We were in the naffy, I know, and we used to sit chatting and, you know, having a cup of tea and your cake (laughs) during the evening. And that's how we first started talking. It progressed and we got on very well and we fell in love. That September, we decided we would get married because I knew that, I had no home anyway. Now, I couldn't go home to mum and dad or anything. And I thought, well, you know, that would be a good idea, really. If I got married, we'd have a home together and I'd be with the man I love.
1: Are we allowed to tell him about the nighty and where the nighty came from? Come on, it's too cute. Uh,
0: yes. This was at a gun site where we were firing again. We, we were on duty and we were at the command post and we did shoot this plane down. The pilot bailed out. We saw the parachute coming down, but it was a couple of fields away because our gun sites were mostly always in the country. And uh, when the raid was over, we were allowed to, the girls that were on duty, only about 20 of us were on duty, at the command post, we were allowed to go and collect this parachute and they allowed us to share it, have so much each. My piece of parachute, my sister that was still in Civvy Street, she made me a nightdress out of it, then it was, it was lovely nylon, white nylon, <laughs> and it did make a very nice nightdress out of it. But, of course, in the army, we wore pajamas. I kept that, and I wore that on my first night. <laughs> Not that it was any good because nothing happened, but <laughs> but at least <laughs> at least I knew <laughs> that I had a, a decent nighty to wear, yes <laughs> that was made out of the parachute <laughs> and are you proud?
2: of the role that you and your comrades played in the Second World War? Yes,
0: I am. Yes, I'm very proud. Because, you see, once radar came in, we were told nothing. It was all kept very secret. We weren't allowed newspapers. We never had a chance to listen to the news. We didn't know what was going on anywhere else. We were just in our own bubble. And we knew that these two wooden huts arrived, and they were parked up against a high hedge on the actual command post. And we were curious, of course, what these two sheds were. They had aerials on top, and we didn't know that there was such a thing as radar. The girls that were trained on them, I think there were about three girls that used to work in each hut. One was a receiver and one was a transmitter, I've found out since. Then they
1: built um, an underground room where we used to do the plotting. And then by the end of the war, Grace, you're in the plotting room, aren't you? You're taking these commands. You're watching the light flash on this glass table. What's interesting, Dan, is in 1944, obviously, they need to provide air cover for D-Day. And also, you've got the threat that we know is pending, which is called Operation Diver, where we've got to be alert to these potential new V-1, these new cruise missiles that might be coming over. So the AA command is severely stretched. And you're down on Lizard's Point, the furthest southerly tip, in a tent that was strictly forbidden girls weren't allowed to be in tents but they had to jettison all the rules didn't they because the so stretched right across the south coast and on into those estuary bits coming into london where the v1 bombs might drop and in fact it was the biggest movement of gun sites and girls that that happened during the war and because the germans had been tricked by operation fortitude to no avail no attack arrived where you were, and you could watch that flotilla of ships, couldn't you, go and no enemy raiders.
0: Yeah, on D-Day, of course, I was at Land's End and I was under canvas. We had these tents all round the field. Each tent held four girls. And in another field, there were tents for the men, of course. Yes, and we were on duty, of course, and we were able to see. We were mostly firing out to sea because we were on the top of the cliffs, of course. And we saw all the ships going through, but we didn't know why. All these little tiny boats, you know, were all going in one direction. And we didn't know why, but of course they were making their way towards uh, the coast. But of course we found out after. What I was going to say was, once they brought in the radar, of course the girls that were on the instruments were also trained to do the plotting. So we had the usual glass table and their headphones and microphones, and we
1: had to track the planes as they went across on the table. And it should be said, Grace, it, that because you were married, you got relatively early release, although your husband then goes and is serving in occupied Germany. But it made a big difference to you, the army. didn't. A lot of women, Dan, the 1950s, as you'll know, is a very conventional decade. A lot of women, they have this extraordinary experience that has stayed with them. The genie never fully put back in the bottle, but a lot returning to domesticity, to being a mother and a wife, as the beverage Report wanted them to But Grace was an exception. You were absolutely fired up, and you you got a very good job, didn't you? I did, you see, because when the batteries were disbanded, myself and another little
0: Cockney girl (laughs) were sent up to Glasgow, St Johnston, just outside Glasgow, and we were sent there, and it was from there that I was demobbed. And, of course, then I came down to London because I, I was born in Ilford, in Essex, and I came down to London, and I knew that I'd got to find somewhere to live and start furnishing it. And the furniture that I bought was (laughs) utility, where you had to have coupons to buy it. And I had to pay for it weekly. (laughs) And you got a job. Tell them about your GPO job. Yes. My first job, of course, was my sister was working as a GPO telephonist. And she said, well, why don't you come and join? It's good money. So um, I did. And I had to do, uh, I don't know how many weeks it was, schooling. Quite a long time. Anyway, I passed and I got in and I was GPO telephonist for 20 years after that. And of course, by this time, of course,
1: Bob's home and he's got his regular job and um, we were doing fine. (laughs) She's being modest because it was the job that all the girls wanted. It was a cracking job. And also those tests and the selection, you were kind of match fit from being in the army, weren't you?
0: Well, i had been used to wearing the headphones and the mouthpieces, you see. And I was so interested in the map reading and learning all the codes and... In those days, of course, it was manual. The telephones were manual, and then you went on to the automatic later. By the time I left, of course, I was one of the seniors. I'm
2: not surprised. So, Tessa, why do you think we still sometimes overlook the contribution of women in the war effort?
1: Grace, why do you think the men are recognised over the women? Well, I don't think people realise that there were 300,000
0: ATS girls, and I don't think people realise how many of us there were but because was such a large range of jobs. I only watched the programme yesterday and they were talking about the men on the barrage balloons. But it was the 80s girls that did that. When I was watching it, I thought, well, that's not right. It was the girls that did the barrage balloons, not the men in London anyway.
1: War was the man's work. And in 1939, Women's Own famously said, you know, men will go to their posts and women must stay by theirs, i.e. the home, the domestic Arena and Churchill. This is a big U turn for Churchill to come out and say we need conscription. Didn't happen until late 41. And the reason he didn't want it and the Defence Committee agreed with him was they thought it would be bad for men's morale. What were men fighting for if women were fighting alongside them? Men needed to be fighting for their women back at home. They were fighting for their country, weren't they? I know, Grace, but this was a shift. So by the end of the war, suddenly you have the bricks and mortar of public life for girls in uniform, but it's a game of catch up. But also it's called the Helix Effect, Dan, and it's where men are heroes. Men are on the front line. Men are being killed. Women were killed, but not in nearly the same numbers. What's interesting is just how differently we think about war today compared to back then. 770 ATS girls were killed in accidents, in shrapnel, in bombs. I didn't didn't know know that number. Did you not know that? It's quite a number. Obviously nothing compared to the quarter of a million men who died, But it is nearly twice the number of British service personnel who died in Afghanistan in a 10-year conflict. To give you some idea of just how conflicts changed over the years. But of course, if men are dying, we're going to fate them first. They're the heroes and girls are the handmaidens to war in the Second World
0: War. I don't think people realise how much the girls did do, you know. I don't think they they realised how much they were needed to help the men do their job. Men always need women, don't they, Grace, eh? Of course they do. (laughs) (laughs) And
2: the
1: book's called? The book is Army Girls. Army girls featuring 17 women and all their letters as well. I took a huge amount from the letters that they wrote home because I think memory can corrupt sometimes experience. And I hope everyone enjoys it. It's out and it's tied in with the 80th anniversary of Conscription for Women when girls like Grace were told they had to step up and serve. But guess what? Grace was already doing just that age 17.
0: They didn't call me up
2: because I was already in. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. It's a great honour to meet you, Grace, and wonderful to have you finally on the podcast, Tessa. But thank you.
1: Thank you very
0: thank much. Thank you very much. I feel we had the history upon our
2: shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. We've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that. Really, really appreciate it.